as would go, you, would, you start, you have a math project, then you have some physics work, and then you have some work in Spanish, and then maybe you had to go, I was in the show choir, and we toured around, and it was as, and Miss Timothy has on the board, don't forget, your journal for the fall semester is due. I had somewhere around journal for the fall semester is due. I had somewhere around 40 entries that I needed to do in two days. So you could do the math. This was not gonna be a good two days for me. So the first night I buckled down and I'm writing poems about everything. I mean, anything in the room, I'll write a poem. After about the third poem about the mechanical pencil, I was like, I'm in trouble. What can I do? I could copy something and plagiarize it, but she'd know unless I plagiarize something that she's never heard before. Hence, I began to look into my vast collection of 80s hair metal music. And I pulled out my tapes, and I went to a, actually a Soviet band called Gorky Park. Anyone heard of them? You remember? This is, we're going way back. We're like 1987 here. And I was like, you know who she's never heard before? Gorky Park. So I began to furiously hear it about midnight, copy down lyrics from these songs. I am not looking at what they say. I'm just copying them. And I'm copying them, I'm copying them. And then my dad finally comes in the room. It's like 2 a.m. Son, you've got to turn off the light. And you know how high school is. You go to bed at 2 and you're up at 6. So I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed the next day. But I step up confidently with my folder with all of my journal entries and I put it down on her desk. And I was like, crisis averted. Turned out she was a huge Gorky Park fan. No, I'm just kidding. She wasn't. No, she wasn't. She wasn't. But, but I didn't realize that she was, she was more of an interested grader than I was of an interested writer. So she went and began to read these lyrics. To which then she starts circling stuff like, oh my gosh. Circle this part. Do you really mean that? Circle this part. Does that mean what I think it means? And there was all kind of crazy allusions to violence and sexual things that I had no idea. I was like 17 years old. And she's probably, probably like, Homeland Security, I've got someone that you need to check in on on my class. She didn't know. She, she thought those words represented me. So the rest of the year, I'm walking in the class, and she's like, Mr. Cummings, I'm glad that you're here. But my word had better represent who I am, right? My word, it represents who I am. And so when we talk about God in Christ as the word, what you have is you have the difference between Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke, they're going to tell you the historical picture of how Jesus came and was birthed. John is interested in that, but John is more interested in pulling back the spiritual curtain and showing you what spiritually is happening right there. That's why he says, this is what's happened. The one who was with God from the beginning, the one who was God, the one who is co-eternal with God always, there's never been a time where the word was not with God. He came and became incarnate on earth. And so that's why we get this, and that's why we get this incredible part of the only begotten son of our Lord. Now you can go ahead and if you can nail this part down, you can go ahead and dismantle every Jehovah's Witness and Mormon theology right here off the bat because right here off the bat in John 1, it tells you plainly that Jesus was not created. He was not created. That is, that is the tenet of both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. And that, that's nothing new. That goes all the way back almost 2,000 years to something called Arianism where they thought, again, that Jesus was a created being. But John tells you specifically, he was with God in the beginning. So let's jump into this text. Verses one and two, again, we get this word. The word is logos. It is intentionally a broad word, a broad Greek word, the word of God, what God spoke. But it goes all the way back to Genesis one. And if you're, if you're familiar with anything, what happens? In the beginning, God spoke. 
and what? There was light. God spoke and there were planets. God spoke and he spoke creation into being. And so John is weaving all that back together to try to get you to understand. So in the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, you don't just have God's eternal presence in Christ, but you have the fullness of his character. The very essence of God is found in Jesus, is found in the word of God. Then in verse 3, verse 3 reminds you, Jesus is also the creative word of God. So in Genesis 1, God is eternal. In Genesis 1, 2, he's the creator of everything through his words. So that is also Jesus. Jesus is who creates everything. Everything was created for him and through him, through the word of God. He's not create. Jesus isn't a created being. He's God. Then verses 4 and 5, you get to these two words that come up so often in the book of John. Actually, they come up 36 different times, and those two words are light and life. You don't even have to wait very long. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, this water of life, this living water. So light and life come up, and we remember that what, he's, what John is trying to tell you is that light brings life. We said this on, at Ash Wednesday, apart from the sun, nothing would grow here on earth, but also light shows you the way. And the beautiful thing about it is then when we get the light brings life, light shows you the way, the life part is, and Jesus is the life. So he not only is the way, he's the truth, and he is the life. He is the thing that shows you, and he is. But then they get, we turn and we talk about darkness just for a second. And they would say darkness. And truly what it means is darkness has not understood there, there in verse five. The darkness is not understood. And this is, this is a sobering thing that those who should have known Jesus, they didn't recognize him. They liked the copies. Those who were his own people, they liked the copies of things about God. They liked the temple that was supposed to mirror his holiness. They liked God's word. They liked the Torah. But when God himself came, they were like, no, 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 no. We like the copies. We can't deal with God himself. We, and so he was rejected. So we get to verse 6, 7, 8, 9. 6, 7, 8, 9 are all about the person John the Baptist. But the beautiful thing is, is that John wants, you to, not John wants you to understand about John the Baptist that this whole thing is a completion. It's all about Jesus fulfilling so many different things, and that's what John is interested in letting you know. So he talks about not only that Jesus comes, but he talks about the fact that there was someone who prophesied that Jesus would come, and that person was prophesied about. If you look in your Bible, you want to make it, take a note and look back later on at Isaiah 40, verse 34. 3 and 5, Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 5, and then Malachi 3, 1, both talk about, hey, there is going to be a voice that is crying out in the wilderness, make straight the pathway for the Lord, level the mountains, raise up the valleys. And so he's saying, listen, this, this one who always was, who always is, and who is to come, even there was even a plan to talk about him coming and announcement to him, so that now that he's here, you might get it, you might grasp it. And John even says this. So in verses 10 and 11, we get this part again. And he refers back to his own people. His own people, his own creation, they have the temple and they have the Torah. They're only copies, but when the real thing shows up, they could not handle him and they rejected him. And we're going to talk a little bit about the unfailing love that is still rejected. And we're going to talk about that and try to hopefully make some sense of it. But John 13, then, is this absolute tie over to John 3, 3. John 3.3, 3. and so I had a discussion with someone this week, and we had, a, we had a powerful conversation. And again, it's this whole idea of what if someone says to you, but I'm born this way. 
But I was born this way. But I was born this way. John 1, 13 and John 3, 3 tell you, you may be born a certain way, but it's right here. You must be born again. And so Jesus is coming, and Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. You can't get to God through the law. You're not righteous enough. You're not good enough. You can't and you won't do it. So instead, Jesus comes and fulfills the law. So you must come through him. And in order to come through Jesus, you must be born again to take on not the nature of the law, but to take on the nature of Jesus, the one who's done it. And so and then we get to verse 14. Verse 14, so the word became flesh and lived here among us. So that doesn't mean God, through Christ, was born, that Jesus was born. That does not mean. But what it means is that the logos of God, the very word of God, the mysterious part of the Trinity that is Jesus, that always has been, the mysterious part, he becomes incarnate. The word becomes flesh and doesn't just come and out there in the out there somewhere you know floating around he walks among us to witness and to testify about God then we get verse 14 and a half that goes into verse 15 and so this begins to talk about then the community that is talking about this and that is reporting on this and John is saying listen we're testifying to you about what we've seen verses 14 to 15 we're testifying to you about what we've experienced we were there When Old Testament prophecy came true in front of our very eyes, we saw it. We're not telling you some theory that we think, or we're not telling you how the ways that we think we've gone back and connected the dots. We're telling you about what we saw. We were there. We witnessed it. In verse 16, this is the part that I think is beautiful, and I'm going to talk about this. This is how I'm going to end the sermon. But he says this, God has always dealt with us in truth and grace. Grace is something that we don't deserve, but also want you to think about this in verse 16. We also don't deserve the truth. We also don't deserve the truth because grace is within itself encompassed and held in by truth. And the truth is this. We were dead in our sins, and so God came and gave the son for us. That is a graceful truth, and it's what we get, the truth that Jesus saves us. And that's a graceful statement, is it not? Grace upon grace upon grace, just one more grace after another. Then verse 17, in verse 17, he's simply trying to get to say, in Jesus, grace and truth reach their fulfillment. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, grace and truth are now available to us all. And then verse 18, we get that word where we come to it in the Apostles' Creed. The only begotten Son. No one who has ever seen God but his only begotten son, who is himself God. In, in Jesus, grace and truth reach their fulfillment, fulfillment, and the only begotten simply means the incomparable son of God. There's no one like him. He's in a category of his own. And that text wraps up by saying, get this earth-shattering thing. We have seen the fullness of God. What an incredible thing. Even Moses asked, God, can I see you? And he said, listen, I'm going to press you into a crack, and I'll walk by you, and you can see me from my backside. But when we look at Jesus, we have seen the fullness of God. And so this only begotten, this everything that is in God is now in the flesh among us. What do we do with that? And so I'm going to give you a couple things that on the surface might be kind of duh things. Duh, I know that, duh. But they're, they're pivotal in terms of us understanding who Jesus is. And the first part is this. This is going to sound like a, an obvious statement, but listen to me. 
The incomparable Jesus. So remember, when I say only begotten, sometimes you kind of go, you, you go into that episode of The Simpsons where Homer says he thinks he's gonna die and he has to read the Bible and he only gets to the part where like, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so who begat, so-and-so who begat, so-and-so. And you're kind of like, oh, hang on. So we're, I'm gonna say the word incomparable in a category of his own. The incomparable word of God, the incomparable Jesus. And so here we go. The incomparable Jesus reveals God to us because only God can reveal himself to us. Seems like a simple statement, right? But it's true. Only God can reveal himself to us. It's, it's, simply, it's just simply the way it is. God is the only one who can reveal himself to us. And so therefore, when we remember that Jesus is God, whatever Jesus does He's revealing who God is to us. Everything that Jesus does. When Jesus turns water into wine, he's revealing God to us. When Jesus heals the sick, he's revealing God to us. When Jesus teaches, he's revealing God to us. When Jesus rebukes and calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, he's revealing God to us. Everything that Jesus does, because he is the living word of God, is revealing God to us because only God can reveal himself to us. So let's look at just some of these major themes then in here. We'll get, we'll get kind of academic and we'll go and be like, oh, I signed up for seminary this morning. You didn't, but I want you to grasp these things with me. So let's look at verses one through three. What is he revealing? What is Jesus revealing to us about God? He was in the beginning. He's already existed. So that means he's eternal. He was in the beginning with God. If you didn't get it, John's like, all right, one more time. He's always been. He created everything. Everything wasn't just created through him. Everything was created for him. Everything. There is nothing that exists that he didn't make. So what do we know about God? He loves and he creates. Verse 14. The word became human and lived here among us. And then what does it say about God? He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. You want to hear, you want to know what God is? God is full of unfailing love and faithfulness. How do we know? Because look at Jesus. He's, He's revealing God to us. Verse 18. I love this part again. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but his only son, and John's like, in case you missed it, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has told us all about him. So we get verse one, he's eternal. He is in fellowship with God. In fact, he is God. Verse two, he has no beginning and no end. He is the creator supreme. Verse 14, he came close. And when you say Jesus came close, he came close in every way. He truly rent the heavens, and it says this right there in Philippians, and came down and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and lived among us. And verse 15, he made the invisible God visible to us and known to us. Now I want you to stop and think about this just for a minute. Every single other religion in the world could exist without the primary person that that religion is talking about. Right? You ever think about that? Buddhism never claims to be anything. It just claims to be a way of thought. Apart from, apart from Muhammad, you simply have, with, with Islam, you simply have a code of moral laws that are somehow gonna make you better. Good gracious, 
if we throw Zoroastrianism and Hinduism in there, you start getting to these things. These are nothing that the people of Star Wars couldn't have made up just about different things. It is only Christianity that says God came down and told us what to do, and he didn't just do it. He walked among us. He lived it, and then after he had done it, he died for us so that because we couldn't do it, we could go do it through him and then be with God the Father forever. That can only exist if Jesus is real and walked around. Everything else could exist. Every other religion in the world could exist apart and just do its own thing. But Christianity has banked itself on if no Jesus, no Christianity. If Jesus didn't walk around and do these things, if he was not the visible image of the invisible God, it doesn't exist because we believe that only God can reveal God to us. So the beautiful part about this thing is that when you start reading about Jesus, do a little bit backwards of what you're so often ready to do. We say Jesus is the Son of God. Begin to think of it this way. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. That occurs 36 times in the book of John. He wants you to get it. It's not just the Son of God, but the Son. He's trying to get you to grasp this Trinitarian truth that God is Father, Spirit, Son, always, always, always. Well, if Jesus is revealing to us who God is and Jesus is eternal, it revolutionizes how you read the Bible. Do you know why? How many of you use this language? Well, the God of the Old Testament does this. But in Jesus, we see this. Have you ever said that before? I am so guilty of saying that. That is a complete falsehood. Because you know what that, is, what that means? Somehow God was this really old, old, mean, crotchety old man. And then when Jesus came, everything got all sweet and tender. You know, like when Jesus was there, third day was like playing at the, you know, and there was all oh, Jesus, we love, you know. No, 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 no. Realize That when we talk about Jesus being the eternal word of God and God is revealing himself to us in Christ, that means that what we see in Jesus was there in the Old Testament. And that is a little bit of a poop in our stomach for just a minute because that means a couple things. That means that at Sodom and Gomorrah, when they were raining fire and brimstone down on those people who were practicing every kind of sexual immorality, Jesus was not somewhere not created yet. Jesus was there and he neither protested nor said stop. He approved. That means when, they, when the Egyptians were following the Israelites across the Red Sea, that means that Jesus was the one that said, and now let the waves come in and crash them. That means that when Enoch was taken up into heaven, that means Jesus was there and like, here we go. <laughs> that means that when we talk about the one who was there, and we love to do this, we love this one, who was the other in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We love to put Jesus in there. We don't like to put him in the places where God is judging people. But my friends, Jesus was there because he didn't come on the scene. He's always been there. Jesus is revealing who God is to us. So that's the other part where we also then come into the Old Testament and we go, you know what? Jesus didn't just usher in God's mercy. That means we go back to the Old Testament and we go, God's always been merciful. Look at God's mercy. Look at the ways that he did. Look at the things that he did. And so verse 10 gives us a little bit of caution. When we read verse 10, but though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him when he came. And that's part of where we also ought to be as well. I think if Jesus walked in, we'd be like, Jesus, this is awesome. And he is going to be loving, but he's also going to be the Lion of Judah. And he would call us out on things and sins that we commit that we think are just great. 
You know how we know this? Because the Pharisees thought they were just great, and Jesus called them down time and time again. So remember, when we look at this, we look at the totality of Christ in the Bible. We see both the lion and the lamb, and we can't all of a sudden say, well, this new chapter of God's grace, because he used to be mean, but now he's sweet in Jesus. Jesus has been, is, and always will be the eternal word of God, because only God can reveal God to us. The second thing is, let's talk about this unfailing love. Makes for great songs, makes for great, you know, poetry, makes for all these sort of things, but unfailing love is tough when unfailing love is rejected. What do you do when unfailing love is rejected? And so I simply say this to you. Unfailing love is still unfailing, even if it is rejected. Verses 10 through 14 are sobering, are so sobering, because I think if we read them a little bit, with, with a little bit of heart and a little bit of emotion, we can all relate to them in a personal way. But although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, and this is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This is a birth that comes from God. Had a very, very sobering moment my freshman year of high school. In freshman year of high school, we had moved from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina during that summer to Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I was, got in to be part of a youth group. Um, it was really great. And, you know, when you're kind of walking into one of those situations brand new, don't really know anyone, you're kind of, you know, and I'm gregarious. I'll go talk to anybody and talk to everybody. And so sometimes right at the very beginning of being really gregarious, you go over the top. Like, you're like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> Hold on, hold on, let me, it's high school, so I'm like, you know, hey, 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 what's up? What's up? Yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably like totally over the top, I'm, I'm acting goofy, and so everybody was getting together, and someone, someone, someone in the youth group was having a party, and uh, my parents hadn't picked me up yet, so I'm waiting outside the youth group door, and I've only been there for a couple weeks, and uh. I hear this conversation going on inside. There's two girls, and they're like, hey, are you inviting that new guy to your party? To which the other girl says, I didn't want to, but my mom told me I had to. He's kind of annoying. Do you think I went to that party? Heck no, I didn't go to that party. Why? I knew that I wasn't wanted. Put yourself in Christ's shoes right here at this moment. We're gonna go down, the eternal one's already here. And by the way, when you go, the people that you are going to go to, they not only will not want you there, they will reject you and eventually kill you. And right off the bat, in our humanity, we go, well, this is a failed plan. People are gonna reject you. They, they don't even wanna, they should even, the people that should most know you are gonna reject you. This is a bad plan. This is a bad plan. I know that you say that you have unfailing love. This is a bad plan. And that's what we would say from our human perspective. But now here we are as the benefits of one gracious grace after another. And what had looked like failure was not failure because it was fueled by unfailing love. So here's where I want you to regroup when we think about us living out our lives as believers. How would you live out your life if you knew that it was possible to be rejected, but that the love that you were working through and was empowering you was unfailing? 
What would you risk? What would you risk in your life? For I stand here in front of you, standing here in front of you with some people in this room who have risked and their livelihoods because they believed in this unfailing love. They believed it. Right now in the middle of it doesn't seem that great of an idea. But what would you risk in unfailing love? Y'all don't hate me. In a moment of weakness, I bought four scratch-off tickets for Danielle the other day. She's a gambler. I can't help it. I married a gambler. (laughs) To be fair, she knows when to hold them, fold them, when to walk away, and when to run. But four. They were each a dollar each. I risked four dollars. Do you know how much we won? One dollar. That's a net loss of three dollars. But what if I had just all of a sudden been like, you know, walked into that place and God just said, Hey, buddy, hanging out with Joel Osteen later, earlier today. He gave me some new ideas. Buy that $20 lottery ticket, I guarantee. How many would I buy? I would empty it. I was like, by the way, I found it. You can't buy them with your credit card, so that's a problem. But anyway, what would you risk if you knew that the result was unfailing love, even if it was rejection? And so now I go back and replay so many of the things that I risked in my life, the conversations that I had that were uncomfortable, the times that I presented the gospel to someone and they truly basically kind of did this to me, the times that I got, y'all, just here recently, I, I came to my wife in tears showing her what someone wrote back to me about keep your stupid Christianity to yourself. What does it feel like? Rejection. Guess what? We've got good company for that. Christ rejected, did it thwart his plan? No, because his plan is empowered by the one who is eternal, unfailing love. So I ask you one more time, what would you be willing to risk if you knew that you might be rejected, but what you were doing was empowered by unfailing love? Who is God calling you to love that's hard? What situation is God calling you to get into with someone that is lost and broken? What situation and what ministry is God calling you to partner with that you go, there's no way I can do that because it's true. There's no way that you can do that, but you were empowered and held up by the Son of God who is unfailing love. And the last thing is this. And this is the part where I could have just preached on this. Remember we said Jesus is incomparable. The incomparable only begotten son of the father is one more example of the fact that God deals with us with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So if I am the lawyer representing God, I begin my opening statement like this. I'm gonna read you. Verse 16, we have all benefited from the rich blessings he brought to us. One gracious blessing after another. So let's start in creation. First, God did not need us, but love begets love. Parents, you understand this. You are two, you get married, you are living with each other, and first you're like, that. we got so much love to give, so you get a dog. That doesn't do it for you, does it? Your love desires to create. And out of your love, the God, the Father Almighty, allows there to be a little being that looks a little bit like you and a little bit like your spouse and throws up a lot more than either of the two of you. And out of love, there is a creation. And in grace, you care for that being when they can do nothing for you. You pour in and pour in and pour in and you get nothing back but throw up. 
and sleepless nights. And so out of grace and love, we are created. And you jump right ahead to Genesis chapter 3, and the people that he has created sin against him. And what does he do? Don't miss this. Grace. Before he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, he slaughters animals and comes to them and presents them with clothing in grace to cover their shame. I would not have thought of that. But God in grace covers their shame. That is grace. You've sinned, you've messed up, but I'm going to cover you with what I will provide for you. In Exodus, when they are in slavery, God in grace raises up a leader so that they will see him. In grace, he presents himself as a fiery pillar and a pillar of, and a cloud of smoke, and he sustains them. In grace, every day they walk out and they look at the stuff on the ground and they go, what is that? And so they call it, what is that? Which we know of manna. And he sends them manna bread and quail. Why? They had two hands and two feet and could have gone out there and got something. But in grace, he provided for them. And in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you think of this thing that is not grace that is called the law, and you think the exact opposite of grace is the law, but I want to tell you that the law is also grace, because if it is an impossibility for a holy God to have fellowship with sinful, dark, depraved people, then if he raises up a law so that we might be able to have fellowship and interaction with one another, my friends, that is grace. One more grace on another. If I can't have a relationship with you, but I, on my own, come up with a way that we can fellowship, that is grace. And then he raises up women, Esther and Ruth. Women didn't have any say-so. And who does God use in grace to lead his people? Women. And he raises them up and puts them at just the right place at the right time so that they may represent God and lead his people well when men are not there. And that is grace. And then he raises up the man that is near and dear to his heart, and his name is David. And he says, he is a man near and dear after our own heart. And David, through God's grace, teaches his people how to worship him. Not that they didn't know, but my friends, Psalms is a multi-billion platinum album, guys. Like, I mean, Quincy Jones is signing that thing. It's amazing. And he's saying, hey, listen, I know God's heart, and I want you to be able to come and worship him. Yes, I know that he is so far away. Yes, I know that he created everything. Yes, I know that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. But I want to show you how you can have intimate worship and relationship with him. My friends, that is grace. And then when his people and his own kings walk away, begin to worship other idols, even after the grace upon grace that God has given to him, he raises up people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of these people to whom still in the midst where everybody is doing wrong say, don't forget God. Don't forget God. God is still good. God is still working. Come back to him. You know what you're supposed to do. Stop doing it. God could have just been like, I'm done with you. Bye. I'm going to start again with some Indians in America around the turn of the... Oh, no, that's Mormonism. Anyway, they said, you know, I could have just been like, no, but no. He continues to raise up prophet after prophet after prophet, telling the people, come back, come back. Don't you love how Isaiah is? Come, I, though your sins may be a scarlet... Let's argue it out, and we'll wash them as white as snow. And then something else happens. After the last prophet, God is silent for 400 years. And you go, well, if this is a God of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, what's he going to do next? 
What's he going to bring back Balaam's donkey? What's he going to do? He gives us himself. He gives us himself. He gives us himself. This is, this, does this not make so much more sense now when we look at John and John's story of Jesus turning the water to wine? And what does the man say? Usually people wait and bring out the best wine until everyone else is already, but you have brought it out now. Right, because grace after grace after grace after grace, and now we're not going to get the tail end. Now we get the whole thing, and we get God the Father Almighty. Grace upon grace. And then the other grace is that John tells you about this one more time, and he finishes, and we'll skip ahead to John 3, 17. And why did this grace upon grace upon grace happen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would have everlasting eternal life, John 3, 17. For grace upon grace upon grace, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you know, you go, well, what about now? Jesus is just 2,000 years ago. Grace upon grace upon grace, do you know what we have? We have his word that is ever-changing, never, never changing, is perfect, is able to relate to us in every single instance of life. And know what? We have God not just in a temple somewhere, not just in his word, but in the power of his Holy Spirit living in every believer who professes Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so if you can think about this in a way that doesn't scare you, you keep trying to stand up in a notion where wave comes in, wave comes in, wave comes in, and every grace is more tender and more merciful and more loving and more holy and more amazing than the last one because, my friends, our God is a God of unfailing love. You and I each have been blessed with grace upon grace upon grace. And when we see Jesus, he is revealing to us God in every way. So my prayer is that as you open this Bible and as you look at it and you pour through it and you see the words of Christ and you see the words of his prophets, you would say, God is revealing himself to me because he wants me to know him because I belong to him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, what a powerful, incredible God you are. So tender, so intimate, so amazing. And Jesus, we come to you this morning just having taken for granted how amazing you are. We can quote every single one of these scriptures and just rip it off the top of our heads. Lord God, but you are so much bigger, better, amazing than that. And Lord God, when we think we've reached the depths of your goodness or reached the depths of your mercy or reached the height of your holiness, Lord God, we have not come close Oh, what a foretaste we have now, Lord God. So enliven and open up our holy taste buds that we would crave you, your word, your power, your name, your truth, your holiness, your discipline, God. We would not shrug it off, but welcome it, hold on to it, because the cross is how we were bought. And so let us treasure it and you for eternity. Thank you so much for your incredible love, and I pray that you would continue to speak to us through the power of your word. It's in your awesome name we pray, amen.